I'm Sarah Fenske. Caldi's Coffee is a homegrown company. It was born here. It roasts its beans here and ships them from here. And of its 17 cafes or other retail shops, 10 are right here in St. Louis. But in recent years, Caldi's owner, Tricia Zimmer Ferguson, has been spending a lot of time far from the Midwest in Rwanda. And it's not just because the company sources many of its beans there. It's that Ferguson is working with an all-girls college there called Aquila Institute. And Caldi's owner, Tricia Zimmer Ferguson, is here today to discuss just that. So, Tricia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. And we're also joined by Karen Sherman. She's the president of Aquila Institute in Rwanda. She's also the author of Brick by Brick, Building Hope and opportunity for women survivors everywhere. Uh, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Trisha, you've been sourcing your coffee um, in Rwanda for about five years now. I'm wondering, when did your involvement in that country go from beans to people? Yeah, great question. You know, I think we've always been in the people business. Um, As much as I love coffee, I think one of the best things it does is bring people together. And um, being that it is a global business, uh, it's really opened, I know, my eyes to, to the possibility everywhere. And so, um, you know, when when I met Karen about a year ago, and we started talking, uh, we just felt there were a lot of similarities in terms of what what we were doing in Rwanda, the possibilities of what we could do together in Rwanda. So I felt a deep calling to learn more. And so through um, Karen's encouragement, took a trip with her to Rwanda this past November. And um, again, it just really opened my eyes. I mean, obviously, we have relationships with some of the producers there that we've been working with. But um, in terms of really getting a little bit more deeper in the community, and I think really finding even a, a bigger sense of purpose for what we could do and how we could impact people in Rwanda. And and I use Rwanda specifically because um, I think it's just a starting point in terms of, of what's happening in Africa. And I think, too, it was never um, something that I said, oh, my gosh, we have to go to Africa and do this. But um, one road leads to another. And after going there, it, it's really just opened my eyes. And I, and I think we're on to something. So tell me, in terms of um, your company's commitment to the Aquila Institute, what are you going to be doing there? Yeah, um, you know, education has always been something personally important to me. I've always mentored uh, college students. And this past year, we even kicked off an experiential learning program at the University of Missouri's True Last College of Business. So they're really just teaching students how to run a business outside their normal classroom activities. Uh, the cool thing about our business is that it is a, um, you know, it within the four walls of a bricks and mortar space, you actually have a full P&L of what a business looks like. I'm sorry, what's a P&L? Yeah, it's a profit and loss statement uh, in terms of in, in business terms. And, and for that, you know, that applies to any business. So for students to to be able to actually have access to that while going to school and to be able to run an actual business inside the four walls of, of a college, um, to us looked like a great potential. Students want college or good coffee and tea anyway. So if we could put a coffee shop in a university and then let the students run it and lead with that, then we felt like they could actually have transferable skills that would, you know, go on after graduating from college. And so when Karen and I met and um, I found out what the Aquila Institute was doing with Rwanda, I said, wow, this could extend beyond just Missouri. We could actually have an experiential learning cafe program at the Aquila Institute. And so that's kind of where our conversation started is, could we open a Caldi's Coffee inside of Aquila in Rwanda and um, let the students actually have, you know, um, access to running a, an actual business there? And also, it's it's even more special because they're, they're growing the product in that country. We don't have that luxury in the United States. We have 
have to source quality coffee from all over the world. And a great place for that is Africa. But in Rwanda, we could actually be using the full supply chain there, knowing that the producers are growing the, the coffee in that country and then transferring that coffee and product to Aquila, where the girls could, could actually run a business and have those hands-on skills. skills. So Karen Sherman, is the idea that this will have to operate like a business? This thing can't just be, um, it's going to have to break even or to actually make money, um, even as it's on the campus. Absolutely. Well, we uh, have three majors that we offer at the Aquila Institute, which are all linked to some of the fastest growing sectors of the economy, hospitality management and information systems and small business management and entrepreneurship. So what Tricia is talking about here links up very nicely with our market-relevant curriculum and being able to create economic opportunities through education for the women who go to Aquila. So yes, we would set it up on a profit-making, um, as a profit-making concept to be able to link up women both from an education and training standpoint, but then ultimately from an income generation standpoint. And so where does this plan stand at this point? What kind of timeline are you on? Um, we are looking to build on the work that we did in this initial trip in November with some ongoing um, development and support over this next year with the idea that we could possibly even launch towards the end of 2020. That's exciting. Now, I want to take a step back here. So many Americans, if we knew if we know anything about Rwanda, it's mainly about the genocide that took place there in 1994. There were mil- nearly a million people who were slaughtered in just four months. But really, when you think about the passage of time, that was more than 20 years ago. Right. So Karen Sherman, tell us about Rwanda today. An overview for those who aren't that familiar with this country. Mm-hmm. Um, what's driving it and, and where's it at? Yeah, what um, I think people, uh, a lot of people are actually stuck in their vision of Rwanda with 1994 and obviously what happened there was horrific for the population in general, for the Tutsis who were murdered over the 100 days of unimaginable violence and inhumanity, for the 300,000 women who were raped and tortured during the genocide. But I like to say that the Rwanda story doesn't start or end with the genocide. I mean, since then, the country has not only developed, they've thrived. They have one of the fastest growing economies in East Africa and really serve as a model for human development across the region. And some of the biggest gains have actually been for women. And if you think about it. During the genocide and after the genocide, the population became 70% female because of all the men mm. who were killed and or who were incarcerated. And so women had an opportunity to renegotiate their rights and roles in society and are really responsible for helping to rebuild Rwanda to the place it is today. And the country's commitment to women in particular um, from a policy level, at the leadership level, um, at the local level, and, and all of that means has been outstanding, so much so that they really could be a model for how we look at gender and development, um, not just in the region, but around the world. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, women have sort of risen up um, to deal with some of the challenges in this country. And this is something that you know intimately. In 2012, you actually moved your family to Rwanda almost on a whim. I know you'd traveled there frequently for work before that, but you'd also traveled to many other places. You were just in that kind of job where you were seeing the world. What made you pick Rwanda as opposed to some of these other places where you'd been spending time? Um, As my son would say, um, careful planning, but whim is 
a good word for that. Uh, I literally, you know, because I had been traveling to conflict and post-conflict zones around the world for close to 10 years, all the hot spots that you hear about, Afghanistan, Iraq, South Sudan, Congo. So when I was thinking about where I could actually bring the kids, it came down to a safety question. Uh, You know, Afghanistan, off the list. Iraq, off the list. South Sudan, I don't think so. Congo, I don't think so. So it it came down to Rwanda and Bosnia. And I just, I had an affinity for Rwanda. I thought it would be an incredible opportunity for the boys to be able to experience a new culture and community and maybe gain a new appreciation for how and where they live and some of the breadth of choices that they have that they take for granted, as so many of us do. Now, Trisha, as somebody who is a newer visitor to Rwanda and hasn't um, actually lived there, what were your impressions of the country? I I was amazed by the growth and development happening. Um, You know, it's not exactly what I expected, um, uh, but I didn't really go with having a lot of expectations. And so, um, you know, just to see the economic development alone and what even just the Aquila Institute is doing um, on that level in just terms of preparing the next generation of youth to, to kind of take on the growth that they're seeing there is just very inspirational and exciting for us. And so, um, you know, from a coffee standpoint, I think one of the interesting things in Rwanda is that they're exporting about 97% of of their coffee today and so um you know to to come full circle and actually be able to keep some of more of that product in the country because they're growing some of the best coffee in the world to me is where i saw a really interesting play from a business standpoint um and so that's you know something again it's like wow one day we could be opening coffee shops up in rwanda and kind of helping them see the possibilities of taking that the agriculture development that they're doing and and kind of um you know seeing that through the supply chain to where they're is a retail possibility and uh, there's job creation through that and so that's the part that I think really gets me inspired um, when when seeing those opportunities there and and obviously partnering with Aquila on that and, and what that looks like so Karen I'm, I'm interested in this the fact that only three percent of their coffee stays within the country is is that because it's in such hot demand elsewhere or did they just not they don't really get into drinking it at this point um, I think the coffee and tea culture is developing in Rwanda I think the country country is a, a fairly small country of about 12.2 million people, landlocked country, and then they don't have a lot of land for commercial agriculture. So mm-hmm. coffee and tea are its two main export crops. And so it's such an important piece of the economy that the idea is to, to sort of move it out to the rest of the world while, rather than keeping it at home. So tell me a little bit about that year that you spent there. Um, you ended up writing a book that's focused on that one year in your life. And it's there's so much in this book, so many stories. And I know our time today is limited. But what would you want Americans to know um, if they're thinking about maybe picking up this book about just some of the, the important issues that you get into within it? No, thank you. Um, you know, I really wanted to write this book to tell my story um, alongside the stories of several other women survivors of war that I'd worked with, not only in Rwanda, but in Afghanistan and Congo and South Sudan, to say that, honestly, that there's more that unites us as women than divides us. And this idea that what really gives women voice and choices around the world education, honestly, and the ability to earn an income. So when we even talk about our partnership with Caldi's and how that income piece figures prominently in that, 
I think it it makes a, such a huge difference in the lives of women and girls. And I know at the Aquila Institute, we would feel remiss if we just provided these young women a transformative education and stopped there. What's important about this program is that 86% of those young women secure jobs within six months of graduation Hmm. and earn incomes that average 11 times the national median income. We also know that 81% are paying for health care or school fees for other family members. So the multiplier effect is huge by educating these young women. And so I wanted to be able to share the stories of these women alongside my own in a really honest and clear way so that women everywhere could identify with this. So this college, it sounds like it's really a life changer for the women that that end up enrolling there. What kind of population um, are you dealing with when they come in? Are these, um, you know, the more educated, more elite women of the country? Actually, no. Uh, We're about half of our students come from rural areas. 78% of them are the first in their families to go to college. Many of them never even dreamed about being able to go to college. Um, And I think about these young women, their mothers, a lot of whom are, are raised by single mothers, Many of their family members are subsistence farmers. This is truly life-changing for these young women and, by extension, their families and communities. And so the difference between those young women when they come into Aquila and when they leave and then transfer to the workforce is astounding. So talk to me a little bit about that workforce. What kind of opportunities are currently available for a young woman who's um, come to the point of being able to graduate from a place like Aquila Institute? You know, they it really runs the gamut. Um, even though we're training in, in specifically three different majors, you know, these women have secured jobs in areas like digital finance, sustainable tourism, all manner of hospitality management, um, information systems. A lot of them have received salary increases and promotions so much so that they're in leadership roles. They're working with other development organizations. They're working with a myriad of companies, Mara Phones, a new cell phone uh, company in Rwanda, you know, really across the gamut. So that economy, it sounds like it's, it's really taking off. Uh, Trisha, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, Karen is very humble around this, but she has uh, brought some great opportunities to Rwanda, even in terms of just the manufacturing. Karen, maybe you could talk for a minute about that with um, your, um, your what you did before. So um, I did spend uh, 10 years working with an organization called Women for Women International, and as part of that, worked with Kate Spade and company, and worked with them to engage women survivors as producers in places like Kosovo and Bosnia and Afghanistan, including Rwanda. So Kate Spade is now operational in Rwanda with a program called On Purpose, where they're working with over 200 women artisans to make products for Kate Spade and company. Wow. I mean, that's some that's some exciting news. Um, we're talking to Caldi's owner, Trisha Zimmer Ferguson, about the work that her company is um, committed to doing in Rwanda. And we're also talking to Karen Sherman. She's the president of Aquila Institute in Rwanda, which is an all-women's college there. She's also the author of Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. Um, thinking about Rwanda, so many of us in the West have this idea of, you know, we might feel sorry for Africa or something like that. But reading your book, I learned a few things where I was like, wow, they're actually ahead of us on many fronts. I mean, you talked about um, some of these opportunities for women in this country, just how well women are doing. One of the other things I thought was interesting was their focus on sustainability. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. 
Um, the country has really taken the lead on sustainability, probably because resources are scarce. And, you know, frankly speaking, the continent has really taken the brunt of the hit when it comes to sustainability. And so, you know, the government itself has taken a leadership role in terms of, you know, eliminating plastic bags from the country. They're eliminated coast to, uh, border to border, border in Rwanda. You, you can't get a plastic you bag. You literally cannot bring a plastic bag into the country. And, you know, in terms of of setting up, you know, reforestation, um, green and clean banks. They have green funds where they're capitalizing new business opportunities that have a sustainability focus. Um, the return to sustainable practices in agriculture and everything that that means. So they're really looking at sustainability from a supply chain standpoint. And it's fascinating to see what they're doing there. Um, they're getting a lot of attention for that. And frankly, other countries in Africa are taking notice. Trisha, in terms of sustainability, I know that's something that's very important to you. How does that fit into the coffee business and what you're doing at Caldi's? Yeah, it's a, it's a big part of our focus. And I think just to, to break it down simply, it, it's really about kind of the relationships we have with the producers all over the world. And what's sustainable for us in the coffee business is that we're paying fair prices for our coffee. Um, because at the end of the day, if the farmers aren't making enough, and going back to Karen's point around the ag, the ag piece, um, people won't want to get into coffee, right? Right? because there's not enough money to be made. So they'll take that land and they'll use it for, for other products. And so um, I think we have to play a big role in making sure we do continue to nurture those longstanding relationships with our producers and that um, we're paying them fair wages. And that goes beyond just even fair trade, which fair trade is a wonderful program that we've supported for many years for a lot of our coffees, that we even want to take it a step further and make sure we're paying, you know, 20 to 40 cents. 40% above fair trade prices. So then it is a sustainable solution for them to keep those businesses going and focusing on quality specialty coffee for years to come. And if we don't support our producers in that way, at some point, there will not be enough specialty coffee to, to give with the demand. And so um, that's been a big focus on us you know, specifically in Africa, but also with our relationships in Central and South America as well. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these farms now we've been working with for 10 plus years. So they rely on Caldi's every year to come back to purchase a certain amount of their coffee to pay a certain amount. Um, and those rela relationships we don't, you know, take lightly. And on the flip side, if the market gets out of control, they also protect us. And so it's a, it's a really... Because you have that sort of locked because, in relationship. Because we have the relationship. And so people will say, oh, do you sign these, you know, contracts with these farmers and, and no it's it's really just about having these relationships and going to the farms and knowing that we're working together when that coffee becomes available each year um, and, and then our, our our guests appreciate that at Caldi's because they know there's a seasonality to our business so they look forward to when the Ethiopia coffee arrives or the Costa Rican coffee arrives and know that these are you know coffees that they're familiar with that they typically see year after year. Karen one of the other things that you wrote about that they're doing in Rwanda that I thought boy we could really learn from this in the U.S. is this concept, and I know I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, uh, Umuganda. I love that. I've, I've been mulling that over for such a long time, how we could have an Umuganda here. The concept is so great about bringing communities together. I mean, it, it predates this genocide and this idea that people come out once a month, roll up their sleeves, and engage in a public works or community service project that is near to their home. And there, there's sort of a set day that everybody knows this the, is our day to do the it. The last Saturday of every single month 
streets are closed, people don't move, everybody comes out and they roll up their sleeves. It could be helping a neighbor rebuild a home, it could be land clearing, it could be a trash cleanup, it could be any number of things. But think about the implications for the United States and how disparate communities are where people don't know each other, they don't help each other, the neighbors are, you know, few and far between. What an opportunity it would be for everybody to come out at the same time to help each other. Um, I, I think that's been a critical part of the country's w rebuilding, quite frankly. Hmm. That they're all working together. Hmm. Um, it's interesting. I know that you took the job as the president of Aquila Institute after you moved back to the U.S. And I'm kind of thinking about that, where you kind of have a foot in both worlds. I'm wondering how much of the work you're doing there also involves trying to raise Americans' awareness about the business opportunities and the needs in Rwanda and getting them to pay attention to these things in addition to um, tending to the women there and the staff at the college. No, it's, a, it's really uh, an important point. I mean, I do spend a good chunk of my time as somebody who has straddled both the developed and developing worlds for my entire career over the last 30 years trying to get Americans to pay attention to issues that may seem so foreign and far away from them, but really are all connected to us as human beings and the kind of changes that we want to see in our own lives. I talk about in the book, you know, particularly as women, how we want very much the same things, you know, to live a life free from abuse and harassment and peace and with dignity, to support and educate our children, to believe in a better future. I mean, Rwandese want those things, Americans want those things, and and I'm, I would be the first to say that uh, I'm not discounting in any way the problems that we have at home and the problems that need to be addressed, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can focus on your problems here, but also think in a more global, international way. So for those of us who live in the U.S. and, and don't own a coffee business like Tricia here um, and don't have the ability to just up and move um, to a country, what is one way that we can make a difference without being that sort of bumbling Westerner who thinks they're doing good but is actually making things worse? You know, from an Aquila standpoint, absolutely, getting involved in the program or even helping to sponsor young women go through the program. I mean, if you think about what Americans spend on education today, and I can speak very personally having two kids in college oh. and one on the way, a life-changing education for these young women is the equivalent of about $6,000 for two years. That pays for two years of college at the Aquila Institute. Two years of college. And so if you think about what it takes to make a fundamental difference in the life of a woman or a girl, and by extension, her family and her community and her society, I think that's a reasonable investment. And I realize that not everybody can do that, but could you give $250 a month? Could you give $1,000? And it isn't just about money. It's about effort and attention and about, you know, how we can be more connected up with Africa and the rest of the world. Well, Karen Sherman of the Aquila Institute, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Karen's book, again, is Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. And you can get that now um, at a lot of local bookstores and also on Amazon. And uh, Caldi's owner, Trisha Zimmer Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.